For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Source Up, Season 2, Episode 50, highlights from Lars Johansson's talk at Paris NASH, starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. By being able to image both the amount of fibrosis and fibrogenesis, you can really see if you, with the treatment, turn down fibrogenesis. That should translate into no progression of the disease. And then we can actually also see whether it will regress the disease by looking at the amount of fibrosis. That data or that type of imaging work that you're doing is potentially a game changer. Where we're able to quantify fibrogenesis as well as its inhibition or regression as a biomarker is really exciting because we don't have a good way of assessing that currently. Another area Area, which I think is really important, where we can use these tracers for fibrogenesis is also in the area of combination treatment, where you need to show what is the contribution of the individual components. So let's say you combine the metabolic drug and an antifibrotic. The authorities will require to see evidence that it's not just one of the drugs making the whole contribution, because the definition of disease is by biopsy. But we are so stuck on imaging everything that shouldn't be in the liver that we kind of forget what should be in the liver, and that's functioning hepatocytes. The imaging techniques, the ability to monitor the the tissue and its components and changes becomes a real reality that biopsy doesn't offer us. It allows us potentially to look at the long-term effects of all these medications. Just as there is a lot of really cool drugs in development, several in late-stage development, we don't need to be so short-sighted that we're just focused on drugs and a liver biopsy. In parallel, we need to be cognizant of the field of non-invasive tests and how they can help us mold drug development for different phenotypes of patients with NASH with various degrees of fibrosis. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, Antaro's medical chief scientific officer Lars Johansson, as they discuss innovations in NASH and NAFLD-related liver imagery, this week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. So normally we do all our business at the end, but I'm going to do a little bit of business at the beginning because we've got two sets of numbers that never happened before, one of which is fascinating and the other of which sets up this episode rather neatly. The one that's merely fascinating is that before two weeks ago, we never had even 900 downloads in a week on this podcast. And then two weeks ago, we broke 900 for the first time and we thought that was pretty amazing. And it's two weeks later and our podcast count as of Monday afternoon is 1,072, which is 20% bigger than we've ever been and bigger than half the months in 2020, all in six days. By the end of this week, my guess is it'll get over 1,100, and that'll be fantastic. The reason that seems to be happening mostly is because people are going back and listening to old episodes, which is great. And we're actually going to start a couple of features to help point you to the old episodes other folks are listening to, and we will cap that off by, as we bring the MFI along, we will be bringing online some old episodes every week that people have been interested in, and that might be a way to take advantage of that service as well. That's number one. Here's number two. Something that had not happened at all in this podcast has happened in the last 
two weeks, which is normally our conversations get fewer listeners than our episodes do because most people want to listen to the whole thing at once. Some people want snippets. So usually about 40% of the volume is the episode and uh, 60% of the three snippets and none of them get near 40%. We've now had an episode where a couple of weeks in, one of the conversations is getting more listenership than the episode. Oh, and the episode is the fifth fastest grower of all time on this podcast. The conversation is number four. I tell you this because the episode is Paris Nash and the conversation is the one where Stephen was talking about the talk that he wound up chairing that had two fantastic presentations, one on innovations in imagery with Lars Johansson from Antaros Medical and one on uh, fibrosis with Scott Freeman. Lars is with us today. Scott will be with us next week. So for those of you who really enjoyed that conversation, you're about to get it amplified big time. Lars, glad you're with us today. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. And Louise, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Lars, since this is your first time with us, what I'd love for you to do is take a couple of minutes and tell us about what you do and what you did in your career that enabled you to get to the place where you are right now. And then share with us one fact about you that we wouldn't know if you didn't tell us. Okay, you got two, three minutes. Floor is yours. Please go ahead. Thanks, Roger. Well, I, I think the things that got me where I am now is it started back in 1989 when I started to work with MRI. It was a, a chance, just needed to change job and, and saw an ad and that I got a job with Philips. I started out as a service engineer installing MRIs actually, but then I quite fast turned into using it and, and started to do research back in early 90s. So that's like 30 years ago. And uh, since then, I've been working with clinical MRI and clinical imaging and I was 10 years with AstraZeneca heading up clinical imaging in cardiovascular and metabolism field. That's when I started to get into fatty livers. Already back in 2004, we did our first interventional trials. And after 10 years with AstraZeneca, I decided to leave the ship together with a colleague of mine and start the company Antares Medical, where I'm currently the chief scientific officer and have since been involved in numerous trials in NAFLD, NASH, I think, I don't know exactly, somewhere between 30 and 40 of the randomized clinical trials in this field. Again, uh, starting back in 2004, we worked with PPARs, we worked with diabetogenic effects, uh, looking into liver fat accumulation of hydrochlor with hydrochlorothiazides versus angiotensin receptor blockers, and so on. And it, it has gone on ever since. And nowadays, we're running this company. We were four founders when we started, and we're now somewhere north of 100 people running imaging trials, managing over 400 hospitals, getting images and do central reads, but also a lot of work going into design phase. Since we have worked, a lot of us come from pharma industry. We worked with many of the targets which are still out there for NASH and fibrosis treatments. So yeah, that's in short what I do and how I got here. So that, that started seven years ago. And, and I think one of the facts that you wanted me to tell that you wouldn't know without me telling is that I, I think I'm one of the few ones who, who did my postdoc before I did my PhD. The reason for that was that I wasn't allowed to do my PhD once upon a time because I didn't have any education, but that didn't hinder me from getting a postdoc. But eventually I got some education in the end. But that's the unusual fact, I guess. So if I understand my one sentence version of that correctly, what I I think I just heard you say is that you end up getting a PhD without ever formally going to college. Oh, that's correct. That's how it works. I, I eventually did something in the end. I did the one and a half year in med school, but I worked as a physicist and an engineer before I actually, and, that, and I started to publish. I, I probably had like 30 papers published by the time I got accepted for a PhD. Yeah, so, so, so Stephen, that's how you did it, right? Some might think that that's how I did it. Yeah. I, I actually, unfortunately, I had to do the traditional pathway. 
Actually, I asked Lars this question, whether he was aware of anybody else in Sweden who had ever done that or given how the world has evolved, could ever do that. And Lars, if I, your answer was? I'm not sure it ever happened. I, I know that it can't happen again because now you have the normalization with the, the structure, how things must happen. Back then, 20, 25 years ago, that was not in place. So then it was still possible. So all I have to say is I now find myself hosting a podcast with three people, each of whom is legitimately and completely a one-off. And I feel really boring by comparison, but nonetheless, I've got the microphone, so that's not bad. Why don't we get started? Let's let, let's kick off. Icebreaker for today. One thing personal, professional in the last week that uh, good thing that's happened. Brave one, go first. Well, I can go first. So last week, my son had a soccer tournament. So we went to a just being spectators. I, I have been a football coach or soccer coach for 16 years, but this time I had no obligations, but go and watch soccer the entire weekend. That was good. Louise and I both think that sounds like a great time, right, Louise? Oh, absolutely. I'll just follow that by saying I managed to watch our youngest play rugby and do some training this weekend, which was great with lovely late summer weather in October. So that was even better. So that's my personal one for the week. Okay, Stephen, you're up. Well, since we're on the theme of balls, I'm going to take this one to the traditional American football since it's October. And that's what we do in America in the fall is throw around an oblonged leather ball and tackle each other. And so it was a great weekend. My teams were 3-0. and So my son's college team took down the number one team in the country. And my alma mater took down Arkansas, and my daughter's college, Southern Methodist University, beat Navy. So it was a, it was a good weekend, 3-0. and Well, let it be noted in the Harrison household that we know who's got bragging rights because we know who took down Alabama and we know who got taken down by Alabama. Yes, that's, that's true, but we really didn't need to go there. <laughs> yeah, of course we did. Of course we did. We absolutely did. Maybe the best win of all of them, being a, an Army veteran of 29 years, was to see Navy go down at the hands of, you know, a small Division One school called Southern Methodist University. That was great. I thought you might have enjoyed that one more than the, even the A&M Alabama. So good for you. That's a great weekend. But I actually was at the Alabama game with my son, who stormed the field, and that was a memorable event, one that he will never, ever probably replicate or forget in his lifetime, nor his dad watching it all unfold. What's it like watching your son storm the field? Well, I never actually saw him because he was in the mass of everybody. There was 106,000 people there. So it was the second largest crowd ever at that stadium. So I just knew he was down there in the mess somewhere where his mother and I were sitting. We were in the the uh, on the alumni side, which was opposite of the student section and not in the nosebleed area, which is where he was. Mm-hmm. So he had to descend down from the upper deck, which was three decks tall, to get to the point where he could run out onto the field. And in the middle of that, he had to defy the, the cops and various authorities that were trying to prevent that from happening. But, you know, we knew with his perseverance that he would succeed in and making it to the field. And he has tons of videos of them lifting the quarterback up and, and the quarterback body surfing through the crowd. And it was it was just a lot of fun. Well, that's great. Everything you guys are talking about makes mine sound really weak by comparison. But I cook a lot, for those who don't know. And for years, 
I had watched chicken get served spatchcock style, and it sounded to me not the hardest thing in the world to do. For those who don't know, basically what you do is you cut the backbone out of the chicken, you make an incision in the cartilage, and it enables you to cook a whole chicken lying flat, and you can do all kinds of cool things with it. And in what passes for surgery for people who had nothing to do with medicine in their lives, I um, extracted a chicken backbone this weekend and spatchcocked the chicken, and it probably shouldn't have filled me with such a sense of accomplishment, but it was just one of those things I never thought I'd do. Not, not quite a bucket list item, but probably a handle of the bucket list item, if you will. And by the way, they're fantastic. It's a great way to make a chicken. It's really hard to screw up after you do that if you do it right. All right, enough about all that. And then and then obviously we've got all these 10th, the, the 1100 downloads and the, all the other good stuff on the podcast, which has been really exciting. So with that, let me turn to Stephen for a minute. And Stephen, just set up briefly what it was that you found about that Paris Nest session that was so um, energizing and inspiring. And then we'll turn to Lars to talk more about what he had to say as part of it. Go ahead. Thanks for bringing this up, Roger. I mean, having the opportunity to go to the Parish Nash Summit was exciting, not only because the COVID pandemic, we've been unable to travel, and this was my first venture across the Atlantic in the past two years, but also just seeing a lot of colleagues up front and in person, I think it made for a wonderful conference. As part of that, in attendance at the meeting, I was asked to moderate a session on fibrosis, liver fibrosis. Part of that session, there were three different speakers, pathologist and then Lars speaking on imaging and Scott Friedman speaking on fibrosis from a stellate cell perspective. I found all of them to be remarkable and intriguing. I learned quite a bit from each of them. And as part of that, one of the things that that I was struck by in particular was the lecture that Lars gave on imaging relative to fibrosis. And in the world I live live in every day where we're focused on MRI, proton density, fat fraction, multi-parametric MRI with corrected T1, and MRI elastography, there was so much more that I guess I wasn't in tune with that people like Lars are working on. And I was glued to his presentation. I thought it was unbelievable. And I thought it was worthwhile sharing with you guys on the podcast. So fortunately, Lars has taken the time out of his incredibly busy schedule, running a growing company to join us today on the podcast to share with you guys what you were unable to hear if you did not attend the meeting in Paris. But hopefully he can enlighten us with some of the particulars of things that are exciting in the field that he is working on today that maybe tomorrow or in the near future we might be able to see firsthand either in research or in clinical practice. So Lars, thanks for joining us today. And I'll turn it over to you to tell us a little bit about what's going on in your world relative to imaging and liver disease. Well, thank you, Stephen, for that nice summary of the Paris NASH meeting. Uh, I was invited to give a talk about uh, innovations in imaging assessment of fibrosis, and I think this is something which we're very involved with, both my colleagues at the university, but also in the company. So as I told you before, we've been doing imaging in in, in NAFLD and NASH trials starting back in 2004, doing liver spectroscopy back then. And there's been a fantastic development over the time. And I think the way we view it, and I should say we are not focused on a specific method. We are really trying to image what really makes sense from a biological, pathological perspective. So, and, and we started the early, very early work is on steatosis, but then you can go all the way through cell injury, inflammation, you get uh, cell activation, cell stellate cells, and of course, direct imaging of fibrosis. You can, and I will come back to that, uh, using MRE and others. We are also looking into effects on 
hemodynamics and portal hypertension, also in subclinical space. And I think there's some, that was one of the topics I didn't touch upon there, but I think there's some really interesting data emerging also in that field. Now, what I did talk about was work that we are doing in developing PET tracers targeting both fibrosis uh, in, in, in terms of, of targeting collagen 1, but also hepatic stellate cell activation with the PET tracers targeting PDGF4 beta. Why we do that is because we know there is, in, in, in a normal situation or in a healthy situation, there is a balance between fibrogenesis and fibrolysis. If there's a balance there, you have a good extracellular matrix homeostasis. But if you have a disturbance that you have an increased fibrogenesis and no increase in fibrolysis, you will accumulate collagen and fibrosis. So by being able to image both the amount of fibrosis and the fibrogenesis, you can really see if you, with the treatment, turn down fibrogenesis, then that should translate into no progression of the disease. And then we can actually also see whether it will regress the disease by looking at the amount of fibrosis. And the way we do this is that we develop this PET tracer, which is a proprietary tool that binds to PDGF4 beta. And we know that PDGF4 beta is expressed on hepatic stellate cells upon activation. So we label this with a radioactive compound, you inject it, and then you can really see, and we see very early effects. In, we've been testing this in a couple of models, and we see very significant differences already after four or six weeks of treatment in these animal models where they start to develop fibrosis. We are currently in the preclinical phase, and we are just moving into the clinical testing with these, I should say. So this is really what we will see coming into life in clinical studies starting fairly early next year and, and hopefully getting into interventional trials within 12 to 15 months from now, where we can receive decrease, hopefully, in, in fibrogenesis and quantify that. So that was the first part of it. The second part was also the imaging of the collagen 1, so direct imaging of fibrosis. And for that, we are, you know, the, the, the collagen 1 fibrils are, you have decorin that binds to it, and that's well known and described. So we have produced a decorin mimetic, which binds to collagen 1, and thereby we can, again, label it with the radioactive substance and image it and, and get a handle not only on the activation, but also on the amount. So that was the first part. And those are both in the preclinical phase, moving into the clinical setting as we speak. So that was the first piece. What was your view on it, Stephen? That data or that type of imaging work that you're doing is potentially a game changer. You know, where we're able to quantify fibrogenesis as well as its inhibition or regression as a biomarker is really exciting because we, we don't have a good way of assessing that currently. We can say, okay, here's here's some amount of liver stiffness that links to fibrosis. We do that through fiber scan and we do that through MR techniques, MR elastography, but actually being able to quantify stellate cell activation and its inhibition, I think would be important as well as measuring collagen one. To me, the next step would be associating that with blood-based biomarkers that we use for fibrosis like ELF, its components of ELF, as well as Pro-C3, and maybe even PDFF. And I say PDFF only because I'm thinking here specifically about some mechanisms of action where we've been able to show that the more you defat the liver, in fact, the more you're able to normalize liver fat content, 
we begin to see gradations in what we would link to histopathologic NASH resolution, as well as fibrosis improvement. So in other words, at 30% relative reduction in liver fat, we link that to improvement in the NAFLD activity score, and even a percentage of patients achieving the gestalt diagnosis of NASH resolution. Once you are over 50%, we're now seeing that plus some evidence that fibrosis is moving in the right direction. And then there's even more recent data on complete defatting of the liver. So if we're able to link a quantification of fibrogenesis with change in PDFF, I think that would be quite insightful, as well as correlating and associating these wet biomarkers to that imaging modality as well. That's exciting. Maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we could kind of progressively evaluate this PET tracer technology relative to what we are currently using to either blend it together or use PET tracer technology to quantify fibrogenesis and these collagen 1 fibrils to some of these maybe even simpler, more red readily available wet biomarkers. I completely agree with you. I think that's that's how we have deployed these things in the past. If you do a PET tracer, this is not something which you use in large scale phase 2b, phase 3 clinical trials, simply because of availability. But what you can do, and that's also how we did when I was with AstraZeneca, was that we, we did some of these advanced techniques to really understand which are the best circulating biomarkers to go into the large clinical trials. So I completely agree with you, Stephen, on, on, on how we can use these to better understand also the circulating biomarkers. Again, I mean, the beauty of the PET tracer is it gives you tissue specificity, which you may not get from the circulating biomarkers. So I, I think that's that's one of the areas where I see it's being used. Another one which I think is also, I think, very important is that I, I've been spending a lot of time working in diabetes with SGLT2s and GLP-1s, which are also very important in treatment of liver disease, even though, I mean, the GLP-1s are obviously there, the semaglutide study. SGLT2s are not developed for NASH, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a good effect in some of these patients. Another area which I think is really important where we can use these tracers or fibrogenesis is also is in the area of, of combination treatment, where you need to show what is the contribution of the individual components. So let's say you combine the GLP-1. For instance, Novo Nordisk just announced the trial with the combination of GLP-1 and FGF-21. But you need to show the individual contribution of the different drugs. So you can have a metabolic drug and an antifibrotic. The authorities will require to see evidence that it's not just one of the drugs making the whole contribution. That's another area where I think this can be very important. And we've seen that in the past when we combine, for instance, SGLT2s with other drugs that you really need to tease out the different components in combination treatments. So I think that is also an area where I see great use of these type of tracers. Stephen, do you see, were there other specific things that came to mind as you were looking at this the first time? And then I'll ask Louise kind of what you got in mind or what had the strikes you? I think that's an interesting observation from Lars relative to developing common therapy. One of the things that we think about in the field of drug development is what makes the best combination. We've always kind of looked at it from the perspective that this is a multi-hit pathogenetic disease and the patients are very heterogeneous. There are lots 
of genetic and epigenetic as well as environmental and even microbiome factors that play into which pathways are more upregulated, downregulated, or whatever that lead to the phenotypic expression of NASH and fibrosis in that particular patient. And we've tended to say, okay, let's focus on histopathology because that's the what the FDA is mandating for subpart H approval. But in reality, when we step back and look at the patient holistically, we really need to be getting after therapies that are more broadly impactful, not just on NASH, but on the underlying obesity and insulin resistance and diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia that are part and parcel to that makeup of that particular patient. So we're wanting to try to bring drugs together that can synergistically not only impact histopathology, but that can get after the extrahepatic manifestations of disease. And where we're able to mitigate potentially some of the adverse events of a drug by combining it with a drug that has maybe an opposite effect, that would be helpful for drugs like, for instance, the FXRs, which raise LDL, but potentially in low dose in combination could augment through bile acid inhibition and modulation effects on stellate cells. So we've been thinking about that perspective, but boy, what what Lars mentions relative to assessing through this PET tracer technology, the impact of multiple drugs, more than one drug, and and exactly where their component parts are, are acting would be another part of this developmental process that helps us get from the biplane, if you will, that we're flying right now to that fifth generation strike fighter that we want to be at when we go after NASH. No, I, I just want to say that obviously in, in the end, you still have to, in the current environment, still have to do your biopsy trials. But for early assessment of showing that you're certain that you have a contributing factor from the different drugs in, in combination treatment, I think this can be very powerful. Louise, what are you thinking? I was just fascinated by listening to all. I didn't um, go to Parish Nash, sadly, but it potentially offers a really valuable opportunity to move beyond liver biopsy eventually. The imaging techniques, the ability to monitor liver tissue and its components and changes becomes a real reality that biopsy doesn't offer us because people don't want to do too many serial biopsies. It allows us potentially to look at the long-term effects of all these medications, of changes to people's histology and liver condition over time, irrespective of whether or not it would be a pharmacological agent. If we do lifestyle monitoring, these techniques, if they become real and we can monitor that change, it offers us to be able to monitor all those changes in individuals, no matter what the solution is we choose to see how effective it is. And some will suit others more than others. And I suppose that's, for me, anything that reduces a patient's need to undergo biopsy and any therapy of assessment that causes side effects that put people at risk is absolutely fantastic. I think you bring up another important piece there, Louise. As you said, I mean, with histology, we can only get that far in assessing the functional aspects. And that was the second piece I talked about in Paris, is to use, uh, and this is something which has been around for a while, and we have Paul Hawkins uh, at Antares, who's been pioneering some of this work, using gadolinium contrast agent, gadoxetate, or gadoxetic acid, which is to uh, at least 50% of its biodistribution is taken up by the hepatocytes. 
And, you know, we are so stuck on because the definition of disease is by biopsy. That's how you define NASH. But we are so stuck on, on imaging everything that shouldn't be in the liver that we kind of forget what should be in the liver. And that's functioning hepatocytes. So that's the other part I ta- was talking about. And that's where we already are running clinical trials using this gadolinium contrast agent. So you put patients in the MRI, you do the PDFFs, you do the MRE, but you can add these contrast agents to also assess liver function. And it's actually not that difficult. And I think there's some really nice papers out there also on the prognostic value of these tests showing that how gadolinium uptake predicts transplant-free survival and time to decompensation in incompensated cirrhosis. That's an avenue where you can combine both the static assessment of, of stiffness and PDFF, etc., with the functional assessment of the liver. So I, I think that's very exciting for the future. One of my particular fascinations personally is the whole idea of dynamic systems. And one of my real frustrations when I got involved a couple of years ago with fatty liver was that by definition, um, histopathology and biopsy is a very, very static read. You get one small slice, you get it only on a couple of occasions. Uh, what you're talking about here, and after Stephen's answer, I'm, I'm going to create a section I'm calling Dare to Dream. We'll come back to it. But what you're describing is the ability to use imaging to capture all the dynamics of the liver at multiple different levels. I mean, not all, but a significant capture of the dynamic of the liver, which makes everything we're doing infinitely more efficient because we actually know where the target is and how it morphs. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's really a fundamental thing when you think about it conceptually that, I mean, the liver has a fantastic capacity to, to regenerate. And when that doesn't happen anymore, obviously, that's when you start to, to, to get in trouble. And that's why I think the number of functioning hepatocytes is a very good mark. And I think that's also why it has such strong predictive value of future outcome. If you have very few functioning hepatocytes, you are in much worse situation. That doesn't mean that it still has a clinical manifestation in terms of decompensation. You may even be at the subclinical situation, but but I think that's why it has such strong prognostic value. Stephen, come back on, on, on the comment that Lars is asking about, but then I'd like you to lead us into a section that I hadn't planned on called Dare to Dream, which is what kinds of vistas can you see, you first and then all of us, see opening up from what Lars is describing? And Lars, what I'd like you to lend to that is you mentioned other areas, subclinical, we haven't even commented on yet. So if Stephen could talk a little bit about Dare to Dream and Louise could, and then you could give us a flavor, and maybe me, depending if we have time, give us a flavor of what's out there, what's coming, you know, what does the future promise that'll make us even better equipped to deal with these issues and create therapies and approaches that work. I think that would be just a really enlightening and helpful thing for this audience. Stephen, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think this is a huge area for the field, not just for NASH, but in liver disease for sure, and maybe maybe other diseases. Functional assessment has been a challenge. We've historically done hepatic venous pressure gradient monitoring, which if, if you've never seen one of those procedures, it's pretty invasive. I mean, it's very invasive. You're going through a large vein in the neck and patients have to be still, you know, you're basically measuring pressure gradients around the level of the heart, the bigger veins heading into the liver. It's a complicated process and there is significant potential for variability. Patients breathe. If patients bear down, you can change the outcome of an HVPG reading. So it's best done in centers of excellence where they do many of them. And it's also very, very costly. So what else is there? Well, we have a couple assessments that could be done. 
that are blood-based, but these involve putting two IVs in patients and giving collate and measuring it over a three-hour period of time and getting at the functionality of the liver. That's called HEPQUANT, and we're doing that in some of our clinical trials now. And the early data looks relatively promising with that technique, but again, it takes a lot of time to do. It involves quite a bit of manpower and patients on the patient's behest and at least two functional veins that could be tapped with IVs. So we need something that is a little bit more holistic that can tell us a little bit more about what's happening functionally with the liver. And to do so with a technique that that Lars has mentioned opens up a huge opportunity to assess liver function in a much more easy fashion and more readily acceptable by patients. Now, the next step is how do we get this done in in a manner that, that is efficient and that can advance the field relatively quickly? You know, if you think about it, we have two MRI techniques techniques currently that are working in this arena. One is MRI elastography and the other one is is multi-parametric MRI in the sense that with CT1 scores above 840, we know that's linked to a long-term negative outcome. Whether it's liver-related outcome or cardiovascular or something else, that type of granularity still needs to be delineated. And Furthermore, the time period to decompensation is yet to be delineated and is a score of 1,200 worse than a score of 840, and if so, by how much? We don't know those details yet. With MR elastography, with more data recently coming out from Alina Allen, we know that a KPA of 5 equates to a 20% chance of decompensating over three years, and if the MRE is 8 KPA, that it's 40% over three years. But, But that's kind of the extent of our knowledge with that right now. So could we fast forward here and ramp up our discovery of a drug and its ability to decrease or minimize outcome by using a technique such as this. And I I think we absolutely can. That's probably one of the most exciting things I took away from that meeting. I knew it was out there, but I didn't know that it was already being used and that this is something that potentially we could incorporate into clinical trials now, at least in those where we're studying cirrhosis. Because to me, that that's where we could really get after finding a, a niche in drug development for this device, for this imaging modality right now. What do you think, Lars? Do you agree with that? or I, I completely agree. If you go for really early NASH, it may not be that easy to separate. If you go to late stage or like F3, F4, it definitely can play a role there. I think it's nice that papers that have been shown in, from Bastati in 2020, where they examined quite a large number of subjects and followed for four years. And it has very strong prognostic value on outcome. So I, in, in an F4 population, definitely in a cirrhosis population, this would make sense. You also also mentioned the MRE and, and the new data on, on the prognostic value there. Another important aspect which I also talked about was the development of the 3D MRE when I was in Paris, which I also think is, is really nice because that also shows that it's much more sensitive also to lower grade fibrosis, which we've kind of been missing where it's been fairly flat and deploying. I think that's also why we haven't seen that much treatment effects is because it's fairly flat in the low grade fibrosis stages, but it takes off in F3 and definitely in F4. 
with that, you also can assess the difference between an F1 and an F2 and an F2 versus an F3. So I, I think that's another aspect which I also mentioned in my talk in Paris. Another point which I didn't talk about there is data that we've been looking into. You, you mentioned the HVPG and the complexity of HVPG assessment. And, and really, is there an alternative? No, there's been some work done long time ago. There's a very nice paper published already in 2009 by Liu and colleagues that was a Hep B cohort. And they looked at spleen volumes. And, and if you just such a simple thing, as long as you don't have a very late stage disease, you can actually assess also the hemodynamic effects and the pressure and potentially increased pressure, which you see by such a simple thing as looking at spleen volumes. It's shown in that paper very nicely that if you have a stage three versus a stage one, you, your spleen volume is doubled. However, if you go into a decompensated situation, that probably doesn't work anymore. And the reason being that then your spleen is also, I discussed it with Massimo Pinzani when we were in Paris. And I think the reason is that because you don't see a treatment effect if you have very long-standing, very high HVPG on spleen. If you're below 10, I think it's actually very linear between pressure, stiffness, and, and spleen volumes. We will be showing some data on that at the ASLD with the novel treatment, how it affects also spleen volume. So I think there's a lot more we can do to understand the hemodynamics on both the liver. You can use the spleen. It's, you get it in the same. You can look at liver function. You can integrate all of these things into a single assessment and learn so much more of what your drug is doing, both on the hemodynamic side, on, on the fibrosis side, on the liver, fat, on the fat side, etc. So I think that's where we are going in many of our trials. So Lars, I have to confess, I'm absorbing all this mostly with my jaw open. Louise, you have any comments or any thoughts or are you kind of in the same place I am just going, oh, wow, oh, wow? Well, I think I'm in exactly the same place that you're in. My dare to dream is at the moment we stratify people to try and exclude disease, exclude disease and exclude disease to get them to the fine point of having biopsy so that we take the ones that are the risk. But this opens up being able to, for me, test people and give them a real easy timeline to be able to be continually assessed in a way that allows volume of patients to come through that biopsy and stratification in the ways that we currently do don't. So mass location, mass ability to look at people with severe disease or moderate disease, monitor, implement, monitor, implement, absolutely becomes a reality. So I think I'm definitely in the same place you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. And then the other place I am, if I read the conversation right in Stephen's comment and and, and a whole bunch of what Lars is saying, is that you can think about the whole the, the liver in the context of the whole patient. One of the things we've talked about in this podcast since the beginning is not only is the liver regenerative, but it's really complex. And it's involved in so many things, but not always in ways that you can easily tease apart. But this would give you, if I understand correctly, the ability, certainly in very sick patients, Lars, you've eloquently explained all the things that we can do as we get later into fatty liver disease, F3 and onthocirrhosis. But it appears that what you have with the combination of all these techniques is the ability to look at a more to more complex picture of the liver. So for patients with multiple metabolic challenges at the same time, kind of classic patient we're talking about, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular, liver, whole nine yards, where do you think this would provide the greatest value there in a way that you can see? Some of these techniques, I really think we can scale up into large clinical trials, and you could even think of moving into the diagnostic side of it. And some of them are really for understanding the pathophysiology. I mean, the PET tracers, I don't think will be 
scale up to the size of diagnostics, at least not in the liver space. It could eventually be done so in some lung disease. We have indications that it works well also for lung fibrosis. In the clinical trial development, I think the ability to make the right decisions early and not necessarily expose patients to drugs that doesn't do what we think they're supposed to do is of great value. If you think the PDFF, the MRE, gadoxetate, spleen assessment, those you can deploy into a single examination taking no more than 20 minutes and really understanding the different parts. We even look at ascites in trials and, and quantify that. So the, how are you transferring from compensated to decompensated? So I don't think we know everything and we need to have very close interaction between people like Stephen, us and, and people knowing circulating biomarkers to really get the full value out of these different techniques and, and which to be used where during the disease progression and during the change in treatment paradigm here. So Stephen, back to you. Thoughts? So we've talked about a lot today. Just as there is a lot of really cool drugs in development, several in late stage development, and we're looking towards combination therapy we don't need to be so short-sighted that we're just focused on drugs and a liver biopsy. In parallel, we need to be cognizant of the field of non-invasive tests and how they can help us kind of mold drug development for different phenotypes of patients with NASH with various degrees of fibrosis. As we've alluded to many times on this podcast, one size does not fit all and all patients aren't created equal. So there will be a need for different therapies, different combinations, targeting different patient profiles. And where MR technology, where PET tracer technology, where imaging technology can help us, we need to be more aware of that. And so this was kind of an eye-opener for me. I mean, I I work with a lot of non-invasive testing strategies, but there's so much more that I don't know that I think it was serendipity that I got to go to that meeting and hear Lars and kind of have my eyes open to additional tests that are out there that we should potentially be leveraging to try to speed up drug development for this field and get to target therapies that can change the lives of our patients. We've talked about this this epidemic of NASH and, and the rising rates of moderate to severe liver disease. We need to get to answers quickly for our patients. The tools that Lars has mentioned today have a role to play in this arena and can help us get there quicker. Lars, I'm going to let the penultimate word be yours, and then I've got one small comment at the end. What do you see that we are not, or what about what we're talking about? If you had to pick the one thing that excites you most, where would you go with that? Answer either question. What are we missing, or what do you see as the most exciting thing in all this? The combination of the static assessment that we are used to, but looking into the functional, the expression, not in real time, but in very fast seeing how we affect disease, for instance, by up or down regulation of of PDGF or beta or other targets, you name it. I think being able to see that you affect the disease in a very early fashion, which we can do with some of these techniques, is really important and vital for our understanding and not to spend time on mechanisms that doesn't make sense. I I think I really hope we get there so we can, like Stephen said, really bring out medicines to patients much faster in the future here. And and there will be still a lot of, of drugs coming by and we need to understand what they do better than we do today by just looking at biopsies. 
Okay, great. So we're just getting kind of towards the end of our time available, and I do have a closing question. But before that, Lars, we've done 94 of these today, you know, and then side conversations also. This might be, to me at least, the most mind-expanding of all 94 of them. The stuff that you're talking about, um, as I say, I've been sitting here with my jaw gate for about half of it. I'd like to invite you to come back on a maybe every two or three month basis and just share with us what's new and what steps are we taking down the various paths that we're talking about here, learning the fundamental underpinnings of disease, being able to improve drug development, providing specific benefit in F3 and F4 where people have to figure out how the pieces fit together and maybe one or two others. But if you're willing to do that, I would love to have that because I think this has just been an amazing session, at least for me, I hope for everybody who's listening to it as well. I know Louise and I have been sending text messages, so I know she's with me on this. So please, please come back every couple, three months. We'd love to have you. That would be my pleasure. Very exciting. Great. So with all that, last question. It's hard to do this in an hour, a lot of which was mind-blowing, but the one thing you heard in the last hour that blew your mind the most, and Lars, I guess my question for you is what's the one thing you want people to take away from this? Let me start with you, and then we'll go with what's been blowing everybody's minds. What's the one thing you would like listeners to take out of this conversation? The definition of NASH is based on biopsies, and unfortunately, that is only looking at things that shouldn't be in the liver. I, I really think we need to assess the dynamics of the liver and the good thing that should be in the liver, which are the hepatocytes and how they work. So I think that's that's my takeaway, I think. Okay, that's great. Brave one, go next. If we are going to get beyond the biopsy and get to that fifth generation strike fighter, laser focused on different phenotypes of NASH, we, we need to have this type of outside-the-box thinking and assessing the dynamics of hepatocyte function, stellate cell function, macrophage function, to the ability that we can do that with imaging, I think is very exciting. We'll hear more in the future about single-cell RNA, the doors that that's opening up to our understanding of hepatocyte and stellate cell function, and then how that can be blended with imaging technologies to further assess the dynamics of that interaction relative to different diseases and exposures to different things, even like alcohol, for instance, I think is, is really exciting. So lots more to do. Just when you think we have, you know, a, a certain disease figured out, we're, we're opened up to a, a whole new opportunity, if you will, to even dive deeper and to learn more. So, Lars, it's been fabulous having you on today. Thank you for opening my eyes and Roger's eyes and Louise's eyes and hopefully those of our audience as well. And can't wait to see what you have to tell us next. Amen to that. Louise, you're up. I found the entire session um, exhilarating and exciting. It was what Lars was saying towards the end, particularly for patients in the context that if you can look at the liver and know when a drug is not working quite early on in the time frame, we can prevent exposure to medications that aren't going to work. But also from a drug's trial perspective, we can stop a medication that's not going to work quite early in its process and therefore be cost-effective in drug development. So that for me was exciting and I heard that correctly. But um, So no, the whole session was exciting. So thank you, Lars. It's been fantastic. And, and I agree with everything that my colleagues have said. And because and, uh, I like simple metaphors, I'll use a simple metaphor. I've kind of felt that we've had not even a two-dimensional understanding of this disease, but maybe a 1.5 dimensional understanding of this disease. And this feels like a three-dimensional 
look at it, maybe even four encompassing time, but a much more vivid way to understand what's going on at the level of detail we've not had previously. I find it immensely exciting. So Lars, thank you so much from all of us. Like I say, we'll figure out when you come back, but this is something I want to make sure we find a way to do more often. Louise, I guess you don't get on a plane until next tu- uh, next Tuesday, so we will see you in England again on Monday. Good luck to your teams on the weekend. Uh, Stephen, thanks for uh, joining us, and, and, and it was great that you were in a stationary location instead of in the car on the side of the road today. We're, we're happy about that. And thank you for pushing me to want to do this session, because it was the enthusiasm that you brought back from Paris with you that led me to understand and to agree with you that this was so important to do, and it's just been great. So thanks to all of you. Audience, everybody have a great week. I'll let our guests say goodbye, and then I'll come back with the business section a little bit. Thanks, guys. See you later. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'll see you soon, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Welcome to today's business section. Today's business section will provide more information on the two topics I mentioned at the top of the podcast, plus an area where I'm seeking your guidance and a reminder of some of the exciting episodes ahead. 1072 and growing by the hour. When we recorded this episode, 1072 was the number of downloads we'd had in the previous five and a half days. Now, two hours later, it's 1083. Since we usually get our bursts of downloads in mornings and evenings, Eastern US time, I expect we'll pass 1100 sometime this evening or maybe tomorrow morning. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that our audience is growing because you folks are going back to see what you missed in earlier episodes. Right now, Eric Rounds and I are working on a concept for a bi-weekly What's in the Vault newsletter. In it, I will list some of the hotter, older episodes that people are listening to more often, discuss what each episode covers and why it might be hot, and then recommend one of my own. We will start by sending in-mail letters to our LinkedIn followers and basic email to everyone else, but in-mail gets expensive, so we'd like to resort entirely to email over time. If you want to receive our bi-weekly and eventually, I hope, weekly newsletter on this subject, please send your address to surfingquestions at surfingnash.com or private message it to me on LinkedIn. Do you have a favorite older episode? Maybe a short, pithy conversation? Share with us and your colleagues might hear your name on the podcast. Since it is you, our listeners, who've gotten so into the older episodes, perhaps you'd like to share your oldie favorites. You can respond to the newsletters when they come out, or you can mail me an episode now. If I mention the episode you recommend on the podcast, I will thank you for submitting it by name, thereby giving you bragging rights with your friends and fellow fatty liver stakeholders. Do it three times, and I'll invite you on to do a 15-minute post-episode interview, which we will air at the back end of the episode after we do it, unless it's a conference, which case we'll wait a little bit. Help us compile our conference roster for 2022. I get questions regularly about, are you going to cover this conference? Are you going to cover that meeting? All that. As we plan for 2022, we want to know which conferences you want to learn more about from Surfing Nash, such that you would tune in to listen if you knew we were covering it. We will compile answers and send a preliminary list before Thanksgiving, and then use your feedback to help us finalize it before end of year. The only other thing I have for you today is a reminder that we have great episodes ahead. Scott Freeman on Fibrosis Post on October 20th, Alina Allen, and possibly a mystery KOL to discuss MREs predicted abilities posting on October 27th. The first two weeks in November, we'll have an episode dedicated to the patient-focused drug development meeting at the FDA with our friends from Global Liver Institute and a preview episode for AASLD. The third week of November will be the AASLD posting, and the last four episodes of the year will include a NASHTAG preview, a research update with Jorn Schottenberg, and two episodes yet to be selected. All excellent, exciting stuff. And one final thought. We hope to be launching CMFI for the Clinical Care Pathway Conversations. That's episodes 49, 1, 2, and 3. The conversation 
conversations next week. Once we finish that pretest, I expect things will take off. Again, if you get mail from us or are linked into me, look for notifications by end of week or maybe next Monday that we started. And with that, I want to finish by thanking our exceptional team, Mike Wilson, uh, Eric Rounds, Steve Ennin, who I mentioned last week, the folks at CMFI who have been doing fantastic stuff for us, Kelly Knopfel, Naraj Swamy, and Brian Cohen, and finally to you, our listeners, who provide the energy and inspiration that motivate us to do this every week, even as our software crashes, even as we torque our schedules to align with our guest needs, and even as we take on new special assignments, thereby making more work for ourselves because we think it'll make it better for you. And we love it. Okay, all that's an earful for you, mouthful for me. Stay safe, surf on, see you next week on the podcast. Dare to dream when you listen to Lars Johansson. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.